Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Second start coming up in this race for our first guest. We are driver heavy today here over three hours. He drives number 27 Andretti Autosport car for Kyle Kirkwood, who will start on the outside of row number five. Hi, Kyle. Thanks for some time. Yeah, no worries. How you guys doing? Pretty good. Compare and contrast this year leading up to race day versus last year, your rookie start. Well, um, yeah, well, it's, it's quite a bit different with Andretti Autosport, uh, given that they pretty much have seven cars under one yeah. umbrella, right, with right. the addition of, of Meyer Shank Racing. Um, so, I mean, it's very, very methodical, their process through everything, and and being with Andretti Autosport, being with massive sponsors and stuff requires a lot more of your energy and time outside of the race car as well. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's been very fluid all the way through the month. We, we feel pretty happy with our car. We didn't have the exact pace that we wanted in qualifying, what we expected. But um, we know we've got a good race car, so that's positive. Kyle, how important was you, as you mentioned, the, the excitement but also the pressure of representing Andretti Autosport to be able to, to get a win within the, the first three sessions of the season uh, back at Long Beach, Long Beach just a couple weeks ago? Yeah, I mean, it definitely, definitely helped within the team. You know, it kind of set the mood for, for everyone, knowing that we're a race-winning, race-capable um, winning team um, on the 27 crew. So that's kind of been the mood and kind of set precedence for 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 everyone, and uh, that's that's exactly what we have this weekend. You know, we, we feel like we've got a race winning team. Um, we're capable of doing it. Of course, we need some luck on our side and and to be able to cycle forward a little bit. Um, but there's three hours to do it and 500 miles, so uh, I, th- I think we can get it done. Uh, Kyle Kirkwood joining us. He'll start on the outside of row five coming up this week for Andretti Autosport in car 27. You mentioned having the infrastructure of this team and all of the institutional knowledge of just the drivers and the engineers. I, I know a lot of this is trade secrets, so you can just shoot down the question and say next question. You can pull the Drew Rosenhaus if you want to on me here, Kyle. But <laughs> what is something that you learned about this race or about setup that maybe you didn't know last year because of the infrastructure or just being a year more experienced in the car? Well, um, the, the biggest, I'll, I'll just, uh, what I can share with you uh, about the team, you know, is how, how much they've done in the off season based on simulator work and, and what they've kind of developed over the off season. We're kind of just placing these setups on the car versus last year for me, I was, we'd go out, we'd do a run and be like, okay, well, it feels like this. And then we'd make a change based on that. Whereas this year it feels like we're doing a lot of sim stuff, um, which has been very valuable. But I mean, there's just such a wealth of knowledge within the team and and even from the drivers, right? I mean, we've got five Indianapolis 500 under our umbrella with, with Simon with, uh, and, um, and Elio. So, I mean, there's a, there's a ton of knowledge within everyone. Um, We all work together super well. Um, but that's really that's really the biggest thing that I've learned is that you can take anything on, on the computer that you, that you put a lot of time and effort into, put it on the race car, and it, and it usually pans out pretty well. Kyle, when ever 
anybody in life, whether it's drivers, whether it's just writing a bio for a website, whatever it is, you, you always have weird questions like, oh, what do you do in your free time? Or, or what do you do off the track? And for a lot of the drivers, it's, oh, I, I do this thing. I attend these kind of games or I do this for you. In, in your bio to start the season, you've referenced the fact that you're always trying to hone your craft further. Even when you're out of the cockpit, you're always training and pushing yourself. How does that routine go for you in terms of in season and off season? Well, it's it's been really nice uh, in season this year because I've got a few really, really good teammates that I can reference off of the best teammates I've had um, in my racing career. So it's been really nice to have their data and their video and watch what they do and understand what they do differently to help myself out Um, because there's a lot to learn from them uh, given that I'm second year in and there's 20 plus years of of experience in, in some of them. So um i've just been gathering as much data as possible from from these guys at at andretti autosport and meyer shank and trying to learn as quickly as possible and it's definitely helped out uh, kyle you're from jupiter florida i predominantly yep. call golf for a living do when you just fall okay. out of a car down there do you just hit a professional golfer like with every step that you take down there because that sort of feels like the hub for things do we, what do we need to do to make jupiter florida the racing capital of the world because right now yep. it's just where all the golfers hang yeah, there's actually a few drivers down there. Uh, some might be surprised, but I mean, Ryan Hunter Ray's in, in Pompano Beach. Okay, or, yeah, sure. Uh, Oliver Askew's in Tequesta. That's that's Jupiter. Um, Rick Mears is in Jupiter. Um, there's a few IMSA guys that are also in Jupiter. I mean, it's a pretty popular town for for racing or sports in general, right? Golfing's the biggest thing because there's golfers or there's golf courses kind of everywhere, every corner, every neighborhood that you take or you go into. Um, there's a golf course, but there's no racetracks. So I mean, it's just a really nice place to live as an athlete. You know, you get you get out of the cold weather in the winter time, and you're able to train um, all year round, and um, it's just such a nice place to live. To be honest. Now, do you guys get busted at all racing boats up the causeways and the canals and the back channels trying to get a good table at the restaurants or anything like that? Or, I mean, uh, no, no. Uh, you have to go so slow in the intercoastals yeah. that uh, it's much quicker to go to most places by cars. So it's nice to go by a boat. I don't, I don't have a boat currently. I plan on having a boat in, in the near future. But, um, yeah, that, that is something that's really nice about Jupiter. There's a lot of places on the water. You can travel by boat too. Um, it's just you got to go really, really slow. It's actually quicker to go places on a e-foil board in Jupiter than it is on a boat. So, there. is there still a, a dream golf course or a couple golf courses you would you would like to hit up as you do like to get out to the links in your free time? You know, I've I've yet to play Seminole. That's uh, oh, we can make right. that happen. We can North, make North Palm Beach, and I've I've wanted to play that for a little while. I haven't had the opportunity to. I don't get to spend that much time home. But um, that's uh, that's a goal of mine. We can make that happen, Kyle. I know some people. <laughs> we can totally make that happen. That's it's worth it. It's a it's a bucket lister right there for you. All right, anything you took away from Monday and just kind of race trim setup that gives you a little bit of optimism coming up this weekend? Yeah, um, we just kind of solidified everything that we learned from last week. I mean, you practice six hours a day, and then this week you only get four hours between two days. So you're kind of just verifying everything that you learned last week, I think, and. Um, yeah, and that's exactly what we did. We weren't actually that fast in it, but we know why, and we kind of verified some things, so it's important. Sometimes in racing, you have to learn what's wrong to know what's right, and um, that's, where, that's what we feel like we did on, on Monday. Um, so 
we're going to be really good in the race. I know that. We're probably probably going to be really good on Friday too, and and we've just been constantly learning. But we feel like we're in a good headspace right now that we can go out with the car that we have ready to go, and we're going to be good in the race. Kyle, I know you already kind of answered this next question for me, but I've been asking all of our drivers that we've had on, as I'm waiting to make my selection for who's going to win the 107th running of the Greatest Spectacle in Racing, why should I hitch my wagon to your number 27 car, and why should I pick Kyle Kirkwood to win it? You know, I, I feel like um, I feel like we've, uh, I've already answered that. Yeah, I feel like we've got a really good race car. Um, all last week, I feel like we were one of the best cars in traffic. We were able to follow the closest. And if you're able to follow the closest, you're able to save the most fuel. Um, you're usually able to save a lot of tires because you don't have to push that hard. And um, that turns into great things as, as the, the laps wind down, right? Um, it's a, you, can, you can race. Some, some people have really good cars to race in, but sometimes they can't uh, save fuel and sometimes they can't save tires and they don't have good pit stops and everything. I feel like we've nailed everything in, in that sense. So uh, hopefully we, we continue down that train. and hopefully we nail it for, for the race because I think we have potential to be true contenders. Love that stuff. Kyle, best of luck. I'll lead that last lap. Will do. Thank you. That's Kyle Kirkwood. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. It is the Fan Midday Show. Jimmy Cook, I'm Will Haskett. It is wall-to-wall getting you set for the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500 coming up this Sunday. Next man needs really no introduction. He's a three-time pole sitter, going to make – I don't even have the time to count up the number of years on here to find out how many times he started in this race. He drives the number 33 car for Ed Carpen Racing inside of row five and the man who single-handedly keeps all of us in the Butler class of 2003 from getting into the Hall of Fame because of his accolades. He is Ed Carpenter. Hi, Ed. How's it going, Will? Uh, you know what? I'm just here trying to talk about racing today after, you know, another week all around golf. So try and make me sound as intelligent as possible. Will you hear, boss? Uh, I'm sure you'll do fine. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Um, what? Any you know, big motivating speeches from your team boss this week to you, the driver? Like any anything in between the ears that you're telling yourself now? Oh, I mean, just got to go out and execute. You know, I think we've got great cars. You know, we've shown that the whole whole week and a half of prep. We had good speed in qualifying, and now it's just about, you know, getting the right balance for, for running in traffic. I'm starting 13, so I've got a, a little work to do to to find my way up into that lead lead group of four or five cars. And, you know, that's the mission for the, for the first, you know, half to hopefully not three quarters of the race get there to, to have a fighting chance at the end. Ed, you did a fascinating piece with Bob Kravitz of The Athletic that was posted just a couple days ago. And, you know, it 
obviously I, I followed your entire career, you being a Butler grad, like and my dad being a Butler grad, and the Bulldogs having such an important part in Stop my life. Stop sucking up to all of us You're, Butler people, will you? I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to try, trying to say where I'm coming from. Okay, yeah. Like, it, it's yeah, go dogs. It's We're always rooting there for that. I, I always place a okay. wager on him every year, but right. in that piece, you're, you're you're very human about the whole thing. This is the 20th start for you, and you mentioned the fact that for the longest time, it felt like to you, if you didn't win the 500, that you might look back and think that your crew was a failure, but 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 being a father and, 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 and being a husband and just realizing there's more important things in life. When did you arrive at that perspective and how, if anything, has it changed? You clearly still want to win this race, but changed your outlook and just focus for the 107th running. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know. It's not like there was a day where something happened. You know, I think it's just perspective that you gain over, you know, chasing something so hard and, you know, there, there's days and there's certainly days still where, you know, I, I bring that home and my family feels it, um, you know, there, it's just, it's just reality. You know, I, I don't want to, my desire hasn't changed whatsoever. My, my work hasn't changed. I think it's just a mentality and, you know, being comfortable with, with who I am and where I am. And, you know, honestly, I think it helps me just because I go into it you know, not over pressuring myself, um, beyond normal. And, you know, sometimes when you're, when you're working so hard and forcing things, you know, you, it leads to mistakes or maybe even a lack of focus just because you're, you're overdoing it. So I don't know. I think just perspective of, of being an experienced guy now and, you know, seeing more of life in general. You know, we could just say we're getting old too. I mean, that's that's a huge. It's a huge part of that equation it's, too. These young pups in here, I yeah. don't understand what 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 age feels yes, speak like. Speak for either. yourself. Yeah, <laughs> we're the same age. I know exactly I know, what he's I, talking I know about. You do. I don't. But oh you my do. gosh, kids, family. Like I totally get all of it. Speaking of which, one of these days, Ed, you won't be driving in this race. Is there something about race day that you're looking forward to someday to not have to worry about all of the stuff that comes with getting into the car? Uh, not, I mean, I can't really think of anything right now. I love, I love competing. You know, I, I'm sure when the day comes when I just can't do it anymore, um, that I'm still going to miss it. I think any driver that, that has had the opportunity to be a part of this spectacle, you know, it's, it's hard to let go. And I'm sure the emotions come back and you you never don't want to be out there or not be out there. So you know, I, I love every I love every ounce of it. You know, even even when it stings, when we don't get the outcome that we want. Um, you know, but I I enjoy the process. I enjoy the work. You know, we talk about getting older. I enjoy working with the younger guys mm-hmm. and you know trying to help them and also you know keep keep me young at the same time. So it's it's a I still love what I'm doing. What's the difference in the day to day for Ed Carpenter, the owner, versus Ed Carpenter, the driver, in terms of the preparation for this race, but the entire IndyCar series? It, and on top of that, did you ever imagine a day growing up as a kid where not only would you be a driver in this sport, but you would also be an owner? I know you've done it for a number of years now, doing both, but that has to be something that is pretty special to be able to have kind of both feathers in your cap in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I think I've done more now as a driver owner than I did just driver. Uh, especially after this one. But, you know, I, I always had interest in ownership. You know, I, I never certainly didn't think it would happen as early as it did. Um, but I, I enjoy both roles. I certainly, 
you know, love the days where I get to get in the car. You know, it's it's a lot easier. I love listening to other drivers and, and teammates talk about how busy they are. And, you know, a lot of them don't even have kids or a wife. And I'm like, you guys have, you guys <laughs> no, have no idea. idea I'm like, you're not, you're not busy at all. So, you know, I, I lo- that's the one thing I love about May. It's like, I don't want to say it's a vacation, but in a way it is because my my responsibilities are so simple and focused at, at one job that it, it really, it does take a weight off. Um, so, yeah, I, I love it. And it's it, it's easier just having one, one thing to worry about. And I, I do a pretty decent job of just turning everything else off, at least on the ownership side of things, and, and let my leadership team, you know, carry the burden, and they do a fantastic job at it. Life is a continuous learning experience. 20-some races into your Indianapolis 500 racing experience, is there something that you're still learning today? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I push myself every day, and, you know, working working with the team, you know, that's that's one thing that I've always tried to do, especially as an owner-driver, is I think it's really important for all the all the people on the team, especially those that I'm directly working with, you know, from strategist to race engineer and assistants, you know, they need to know that they can be comfortable, you know, pushing me hard and, and being honest with me, even if it's something that I don't want to hear. So, you know, I, I, I enjoy that process. Like, you know, I was talking to our driver coach yesterday and he's like, I know you probably don't want to hear this right now, but you know, I need you to, I need you to do a little better job at this one thing. You've improved a ton at it since we were working on it last year. And he's like, I want, this will be the last time I tell you this month. And I'm like, no, Lee, keep, keep telling me, you know, pound it into me. Like I'm, I want to be, I want to be coached and I want to be the best, best that I can be. So I, I, I enjoy that aspect of it. And if first time, race goers or people that are looking for a selection to be made for who's going to win this race. If they were looking for a reason to back end carpenter in your 33 car this weekend, why should they do it? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've been fighting for this. It's my dream. Um, I bust my butt for it. And, you know, I think it'll be, may not be the most popular story from an IndyCar standpoint because I'm a part-timer and a local guy. I don't have big social media following because I just don't care to. But uh, this is, is, you know, as a professional career goes, this is all I want. And I'm going to be out there giving it my all. What, knowing your car and then what this race entails, what is it going to take for that dream to finally come true this week? Uh, I mean, you know, it really is pretty simple. You've got to be there. You know, you've got to be in that, whether it's three, four cars, you know, it gets really hard beyond that to, to make things happen and make passes if you're deep in the train. So first things, we've got to find our way to the front and execute on track, not make mistakes. We've got to be great in the pits. And then, you know, we've got to make the adjustments over the course of the day as the track temp comes up and the wind changes, whatever it may be, to to have the balance that we need in the end to to lead the last lap so you know i've been really really confident in my car all month long um you know so i feel like so long as we can position ourselves in that lead group for the final stint that we've got as strong of a chance as anyone out there the great Ed Carpenter starts inside of row five, the number 33 car. I've said the few times I fill in on this show, I'm just here to be the fan voice. So I have no problem saying this. I'm rooting like hell for you. Always am. Good luck this week, bud. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Good dogs. 
Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. One hour and two to go here on the Fan Midday Show. He's Jimmy Cook. Eddie Garrison's across from me. I'm Will Haskett. Weekly cameo, I guess, is how I look at it. It's Wednesday. I'm getting set for the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500. And because I won't be able to freaking watch it on TV here in town, I will be listening to the broadcast right here. And thankfully, we've got a guy who's going to be right a part of the mix of that. Uh, did we wake him up? Is he is he good, Eddie? Is he good? Okay. One and only Jake Query is on the line. Hi, Jake. You know, you did not wake me up. Thank you for the consideration of that. I I, I keep saying to myself that this is the day I'm going to get a nap. And... I've just now resigned myself to the fact that maybe Tuesday, and I'm cool with that because it's my two weeks of relevance, and I enjoy it, and I love everything about it. So I'm I excited. I I, I want to have fun and joke with you about it, but I started this show on such a serious note, and we had first-time participants for the race coming up this week call in and share why they're going and what they're most looking forward to, and it's it's just too dang easy to get nostalgic about this week and how special it is and how great it is. So I'll try and keep this chat as serious as possible, okay? Um, do we learn anything, or did you learn anything from Monday that you think has bearing on how this race might play out if you're prognosticating it? It's a really good question. I think the thing, here's the thing. I wouldn't say, well, necessarily that I learned anything as much as it reinforced what is very easy to forget. And that is that having a car that is really fast for qualifying and and to put this in, because I, I, I certainly understand and respect that probably the majority of people listening love the, the event, but aren't necessarily nuanced in the like, you know, the, the exact niches that go into it. So the easiest way to say it in layman terms is that the way that you prepare a car to qualify when it's by itself on the racetrack with nothing to disturb it, and the way you prepare a car to actually run a race when there are 32 other cars around it trying to wreak havoc on it, are two totally different setups. And so to have a really fast car in qualifying, sure, it gives you a baseline and it shows that your car has speed, but it doesn't necessarily automatically translate to how your car is going to run in the actual race. It simply puts you in the best position to have as few cars in front of you as possible at the start of the race. So all of that said, I think there were a couple of cars that didn't necessarily qualify well, that when you looked at how they ran once everything else was thrown around it, they look like they're really set up well for the race. And the three that jump out to me in that regard are Will Power, Joseph Newgarden, and Alexander Rossi. I think those three guys are going to be very interesting to watch. So that would be the answer, long-winded and probably hopefully not too in the weeds. But I just think that you can't get overly caught up in just the qualifying. And when you look at the practice times and what they were able to do on Monday, you get a better idea for who might actually be good over the course of 200 laps on a full track. 
Jake, in that same vein, every driver is going to say they're happy they qualify. They're happy with where they're at. Obviously, they want to win the poll. Alex Plo is the only one that can do that this year. Is there a perfect spot or an ideal spot when you talk to drivers of where they would like to be to start this race? You know, it's it's really a, it's a great question, Jimmy, because in the years that I've covered the, the race, the two things that I always find are interesting, that's number one, one of them that you just asked, and the other one is which corner or which turn is the hardest. And the thing that has always been fascinating to me is you do kind of get an answer, a different answer from everybody. I think there are a lot of drivers that would tell you, you know, by the letter of the law, the pole sitter has the opportunity to set the pace of getting the jump, and they're kind of allowed that first jump to set the pace going into turn number one, and everyone's supposed to kind of fall in behind them by the letter of the law. But in reality, as soon as you hit the bricks when the green's going, the race is on, meaning any position is open for anybody. And I think a lot of drivers would tell you that being on the outside of row number one is actually to the advantage because you can basically cut everybody off. You can dive down to the inside of the racetrack and they kind of have to defer to the fact that you're a bomb coming in. Um, but I think anywhere in the front row is advantageous because you just don't have – and, again, when I say dirty air, I realize I lose a lot of people in terms of what I'm talking about. But just, you know, the, the it's kind of like when you go through the car wash and at the last stretch of the car wash when the, when the big fans are on your car drying it, you can see, like, your mirror and everything's rattling. Imagine being behind 32 race cars – as opposed to having nothing in front of you. So you would like to have, obviously, as little interruption of the air in front of you as possible to advantage to start up front. But then long-winded in my answer, the other thing I think some drivers will tell you is that if you're not going to be in the front four or five rows and you have to be in the back three rows, I think some would tell you that it's not an entire disadvantage to just be in row 11 at the beginning to just kind of drop back and let all hell break loose for a couple of laps and then find your rhythm and then start to slowly, methodically work your way through. Jay Query lending his expertise to us here on the Fan Midday Show. The last six winners of this race all started inside the top eight. Five of the last six started in the first two rows, but then the previous five years, no one inside the top 10 ended up winning the race. When it looks at it, when we look at these speed it's not gaps it's the as close as this field is i understand that we're kind of running i mean it's all the same chassis you've got two different engine combinations are we looking like we're still in this trend of it's just quality drivers at the top are going to be the ones that are still at the end or do we have enough sort of parity and obviously a lot of crazy things can happen but where you end up with a car that didn't qualify well coming from row six or seven like we saw for half a decade there in the early 2010s yeah, I think the thing that, that drivers are most curious about, and obviously fans and, and you know analysts are as well, is you kind of never know until the race the subtle aerodynamic changes that they've made, whether or not it's going to allow for a lot of passing. You know, we saw like in 2013, 2014, they made aerodynamic changes where the cars could literally kind of slingshot around each other. And as a result, you know, you had 68 lead changes. Yeah. In 2013, I mean, it was crazy, right? And then another 40 of them, I think, in, in 2014. And then teams kind of started to figure it out, to your point, when you're dealing with the same chassis, but the same engines. Teams figure out how to close that gap, and that's why you've seen, I think, the cars that have been starting up front, finishing up front most recently, 
But I do think that the sentiment is there amongst the drivers that they might have found some some more areas this year to allow better on-track passing. And so there may be a little more of that. I don't know that we're talking about 68 lead changes. Right. I still think it's advantageous probably to be in that front probably three to four rows. But the disparity, you know, back in the old days, when I say the old days, I can say the 80s, right, 70s, 80s. You know, people forget that, like, you know, in 1989, when Emerson Fittipaldi and Alex Jr. crashed, well, Jr. crashed, Fittipaldi went on to win, with a lap and a half to go, you know, the final lap of the race, lap and a half to go, actually. I mean, they were three laps up on the rest of the field. Yeah. And, you know, those days, so so it's so much now, the gap from first to 33rd is so tight that, then it becomes about the driver figuring out when it's go time. And I think they all have figured out that the first 150 laps is like rotation and just figuring out where your car is and putting yourself in position to race the last 20 to 30 laps of the race. And that's when it's go time. So it's a matter really of just setting your your car up to making sure it feels the best and then it's go time. But the cars are a lot more evenly evenly divided in terms of their speed and their abilities, theoretically speaking, right now than they were 30 years ago. So you could either say that that means it's hard for each other to pass, or you could say that that means it's more up to the driver's skill set to pass. That's kind of up for interpretation. Jake, because of how tight that gap is between first car and 33rd car, and because every 500 is is organic and different, right? One pit stop at the wrong time, one caution, one one wreck can kind of change the entire dynamic of the race. And I understand you're operating yourself at a high rate of speed, trying to keep track of everything when calling the race. But are there any little like check marks or checkpoints for you where you're like, wow, this car has a really good chance to close it out? Like, I know it's unlike any other broadcast, but in basketball or football, you're like, oh, by the time we get to like the third quarter, like six minutes to go in the fourth, it's a real avenue for this team has the best chance to win. Are there little checkpoints like that for you when calling the race? I think for me, you know, a lot of people ask me, Jimmy, they're like, man, so like how much do you have monitors and computers? And I'm like, guys, <laughs> uh, I'm standing on a platform atop the Northeast Vista in open air. I have me, my headsets, and a flip pad. And during the breaks, I'll say like, hey, and, and I can see the monitors now. I mean, the jumbotrons across sure. from me. But I always just write down the top eight, like like intermittently. When, when, they're, when I think of it or I have time or it's commercial break, I write down with a Sharpie on a sheet of paper the top eight. And then that way when they're coming at me, like on a restart, you know, I see a car pop out of line midway up the backstretch, and I, and I look at it and I go, okay, that's five back. Car number five is Elio, and that's Pagano that's four. So Elio's moving in on Pagano for four. That's, so the answer to your question is a lot of times I'll kind of look back at that flip chart over the course of the race, and I, and I say to myself, and this car's never dropped below six. Like last year that happened with Marcus Erickson. Erickson, like late in the race, I think it was maybe even after the race when I really went back and looked at my my notebook. But I'm like, man, that dude was like of the 18 times that I wrote down the top eight, he was in like 16 of the 18. He never fell out of that front pack. That's one way you can tell just the consistency. And then the other is, to your point, a lot of times a car will, New Garden this has happened with, where New Garden will pit at no fault of his, and then right after he pits, like, the caution comes out, so he gets shuffled back yeah. and goes from running fourth to running, like, 17th. 
So then you look at it, you go, okay, over the next stint, and the stint is the term that we use of the number of laps between pit stops. So in the next stint, you go, okay, he was running 17th when he came out of that pits because at no fault of his, he got shuffled back. And now here he is running fourth again. So you're like, okay, so that dude's car is good. Like he can make up spots. So I do look at that. I look at guys that are able to oscillate and drift back a little bit, but then find their way back up towards the front, which means they can kind of put their car wherever it wants. That gives you an idea as to who the real players are when the knives come out in the last 10 to 15 laps. Man, that's just that's such good play-by-play intel. I mean, I'm, I'm nerding out over that. I mm-hmm. hope our audience appreciated that question, but just figuring out information on the fly is awesome. All right, Jake, uh, I'll put your narrative hat on as opposed to the X's and O's of the play-by-play broadcast, and it's a, a very quick two-parter. Story you would like to see most from this race and story that would mean the most to the series coming out of this race. I don't know if those are mutually exclusive. No, it's interesting because I always ask. We're always talking on the network. Where I was like, okay, so like, which one moves the needle the most? You know, which one? The the storyline that I think the fans would most enjoy. I mean, there are two. I would have said a week ago, Tony Kanan winning the race or Elio. I mean, either one of those because they're veterans. Because Kanan, we know it's theoretically his last race. He lives in Indy now. I mean, there's a lot to love about Tony Kanan. Castro Nevis. You know, it would be history to see a fifth. The reality is if Graham Rahal won the race, it would be an unbelievable story. Not only because it would be unprecedented to go from 33rd to 1st, because, but, but because of everything that's gone into his last week. Yeah. Um, and I do think that he's, he is a guy that can figure out how to work his way through the field. He's got a good car. He's a better car. <laughs> is it a, yeah. Is it a winning car? Probably not. But it's certainly a top 10 car. And I could see him getting up there and getting in the mix to make it interesting. Um in terms of what would be the best to move the series forward, quite frankly, Auto Award would be huge because, you know, Alex Pelot's a great story, but he's already a season champion. He's a more reserved guy. Pata Award is a dynamic personality. Mm. He's a larger-than-life kind of character personality. He has a huge fan following, not only from the fact that he was born in Monterey, Mexico, and is a, you know, has Mexican nationality, but he went to high school and middle school in San Antonio. So he does have, you know, U.S. citizenship as well. He's a dual citizen, I believe. But he has a massive fan following, and he is one that I could see breaking through and becoming a Canaan-level fan yeah. favorite over the course and totality of his career. And that may keep him an IndyCar and keep him focused on trying to win a second one as opposed to maybe trying to make that jump to Formula 1 with McLaren. So that would be the one that I think would best serve the series. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because I don't know. I mean, I like to consider myself, you know, responsibly aware of what is happening in open-wheel racing, being an Indianapolis resident who loves sports and everything. But, I, I mean, I couldn't pick Pato Award out of a lineup if he was walking by me on – Monument Circle right now, and I think that's that's so interesting to sort of hear that, and not to turn this into a golf conversation, but I'm coming off a week where I'm looking at Michael Block's face on TV every five seconds. I'm in FedEx today and another place today, and I'm wearing a PGA shirt, and they're like, "Oh, did you did you see that tournament with that Michael Block guy? He's just like us." And I'm like, "You mean the tournament that Brooks Kepka dominated and won?" You know, but you know what I'm saying, Jake? It's like the world was captain, and I love the fact that they were captivated by this story because I actually think it created sort of this happy everybody could get behind one thing when we were everybody was still trying to figure out how to navigate really cheering for Brooks Kepka in a major which sort of made this past week of golf 
um, sort of interesting in that regard. But I told people in 10 years, no one will remember the Michael Block story. They'll remember that Brooks Kepka won. And I'm not necessarily sure a couple of days later that I fir- firmly believe that. So you could almost have one of those situations, right, where there's a story within this race that drives more that drives attention more than who actually maybe wins it. Oh, I totally think that's possible. I mean, perfect example. I mean, you know, when Dan Weldon first won his Indianapolis, or yeah, when Weldon won his first Indianapolis 500, you know, he wore a T-shirt that said, actually won the race. And then other, you know, because it was the Danica race. That was the storyline, right? I mean, Danica, Danica, Danica. And people forget that Weldon won. Now, obviously, Weldon's became a fan favorite over the course of time. But yes, there are absolutely storylines that, that people forget. I mean, you know, Parnelli Jones dominating races and having his his part break, and then people forget who won the race. You know, those kinds of storylines certainly come into play. I, I, I do think the biggest challenge that IndyCar has, quite frankly, is two things. Number one, the perception that it is entirely like foreign drivers that, that don't appreciate the United States or Indianapolis. Totally untrue. I mean, Tony Kanaan, not only lives here now, but you know he he he's a huge supporter of Indianapolis public schools, and you know he's he's a Hoosier through and through. Now he married a girl from from Indiana. So, but in addition to that, let's be real: the drivers are wearing helmets and they're inside a car. You don't yeah, see them. You don't, you don't see them. They look. So, and that's the big thing, right? So, to your point about Pata Award or you know Alex Pillow for that matter, Felix Rosenquist, you know a lot of these guys, people don't know what they look like, and they're great personalities. They're good dudes. They're, they're, they're good guys, but it's hard to showcase that, and in particular when they're in a car going 230 miles an hour. Um, so they've got to make sure those guys are out in front, and Catherine Legg, I guess Gal as well, out in front and doing appearances, and do and they, they do the best they can, I think. Um, but I think a lot of people will. The event is such an overload of the senses in every aspect yep. of the word. I think there are so many people that go – for the visuals, the sights, the sounds, the tastes, above and beyond the event itself. And so I think there are a lot of people that love the event, and then they're like, oh, yeah, some guy won. Yeah. And they don't fall in love with that storyline. Um, and that's that's both the blessing and the curse of the event itself. Yeah, Jake, over your time covering the event and covering the 500 where, if at all, has the mindset or the goals of teams changed for what they want to achieve or what they want to do on Carb Day? Yeah, that's, that's really good. good. That's I, really I good think there was a time where Carb Day was truly about, you know, the reality is this. The Indianapolis 500 became the signature event in auto racing because it was the pinnacle showcase of the innovation of the automobile. And teams and mechanics and engine builders would sit in the lab for 11 months working up their Dr. Frankenstein of a car or, you know, their Frankenstein monster of a car and then come out on May 1st and take their shot to make sure that their car was the one that was going to win the Indianapolis 500. And so a lot of times they were seeing it and testing it for the first time at Indy over the course of the month. And carburation day was the last practice to make sure that every I was dotted, every T was crossed before taking the green flag. In today's world, the reality is that the all of the cars, in terms of the chassis, the engine, etc., 
you know, they're 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 all under the same specification, and they are basically the same data and information from the year before and the year before. So now it's strictly about making sure that they think they have the right angles on the on the wings set up, that the feel car that the car feels pretty good, and that there are no leaks. <laughs> That's basically all they're trying to do is just make sure that they've that they've got, you know, it's school picture day and they want to make sure that their hair looks good. Their shirt is in in fact ironed and that they've got the buttons up. And that's pretty much the extent of it. To this point, Jake, in the evolving nature of this spectacle, the, the month, the week, I didn't have a chance because I was on the air last weekend to watch a second of bump day. So I had to sort of experience the entire emotions of it through, you know, print and highlights and everything sort of afterwards. And I'm softening my sort of initial emotional response to it being, I was actually kind of more frustrated by something that ended up drawing a lot of attention because is it really, it's not the bump day that we grew up with. It's not that manufacturer. It's not Penske having to roll their stuff straight to Milwaukee because they couldn't figure out that was, that was the Mercedes experiment, right? When they, when that like right. just completely crashed and burned, pardon the awful pun there. And they had to end up just kind of walking out with their tail between their legs to be able to get to the next race. It just sort of felt like there was going to be a sacrificial lamb for the sake of keeping something kind of alive. And I'm glad it's worked out that Graham's back in the race, albeit with someone having to be injured in order, in order for it to happen. But I don't know, as, as sort of an outsider, I, I don't know how to feel this week about kind of the hype marketing train of something that just still doesn't really feel like why not just have 33 cars you know or 34 do you understand where i'm kind of going with the question here i'm sorry for rambling oh i think it's i think it's a really fair point i think it's probably a more common point than than a lot of people would like to discuss first off i will say in and this was the drama of of the magnitude of this when you're talking about 94 95 you know, in 1994, Roger Penske basically behind, like I was talking about, I mean, they came up with a Mercedes engine that they were privately testing in Michigan with yeah. no one knowing about it. Yeah. They did every, and it was so dominant. I mean, it was the most dominant engine, arguably, in the history of the event. And it was so good that they didn't really have to pay attention to how to set up the chassis and the car around it. So that in 95, when they had a different engine in the car, all of a sudden they're like, well, wait a minute. We didn't bother to really, I shouldn't say bother, but we didn't need to know the specifications of the aerodynamics of the car because the engine last year was so damn good. And so they missed the show in 95. Yeah. This, in, in today's day, there are a number of things that factor in to negating or eradicating that need, you know, the bump and the fact that back then you would have 40, you know, there were 84 entries. Well, I take that back. There were 109 entrants, I think there was, in 1984. And like 68 were, were presented for a qualifying effort or some ridiculous number like that. Because back then, there was a, a number of things have changed since then. It's more expensive now. It's harder to, you know, the engine manufacturers have decided to limit the number of engines that they are actually leasing out, the tires, all of it. All of it comes into play where there are there just aren't the numbers to be able to have 40 cars or whatever it may be. I do think that the tradition of 11 rows of three is important to maintain and to not 100%. go over that with the exception of a few different years where they've had nuances. So whether it's 34, 35, 36, I don't disagree that the, that the manner in which they came up with the bump 
manufactured probably from my standpoint an extreme word to use i think it's a safer word for you to use i mean that yeah no totally yeah you can you can bash the pga tour i can't i get it (laughs) yeah but but that said i certainly understand it does lend itself to cynicism that's the easiest way to say it It lends itself to cynicism but in the end whether it's manufactured or not in that time when you saw graham ray in his car helpless the drama was there and so at some point you look at it and you say i'm not worried about the means to get here but whether or not the end justified the means to get here and i think it did in terms of what they wanted to do great answer Jake, we started the show taking some phone calls for first-time Indy 500 goers. What's the biggest piece of advice you would give to first-time Indy 500 uh, fans? Get to your seat in time. <laughs> Get to your seat in time is probably number one. Yeah. I would say this. like, it's You just have to soak it all in. I mean, here's the thing. It's an all-day event. It's the one thing where there's not going to be a single convenient thing. If you're going there for convenience or you're trying to shave off inconvenience, then stay home. True. Because from the time that you wake up and leave your house to the time that you get home, nothing that you planned is going to go exactly as you thought. You are going to be in an event on Sunday where one in every 1,100 people in the United States is there. Literally. Okay? And... You just have to soak in and admire and appreciate that you are sharing an experience, whether you're a fan of the actual race, whether you think it's too loud, whether you think it's too hot. You have an opportunity to share an experience with a third of a million people that all have some sort of a connection that they'll take away from it. And that's what I would tell people to sit back and kind of think a moment to appreciate. In addition to that, when they play taps, I know that it's for the fallen heroes of this country. For me personally, I take that a step further by also thinking about my loved ones who are no longer with my family and what that event meant to them. And I make it a personal moment for me, which I think makes it special. But the other thing I would say in conclusion, guys, is this. I've been very lucky and I've been very fortunate to have a career that has just kind of fallen my way at no credit to me. And... It's very surreal for me, and it's very flattering for me, even though I realize it's probably hyperbole, but to to, to hear you refer to me like my expertise of the event, I'm not an expert about it. I'm not any more knowledgeable about it than anybody else. I'm just a kid that grew up in Indianapolis and had a love for this city, and as a result, a passion for the signature event of my childhood that put our city on the map. And so... Just by going back to it year after year after year, I guess eventually even the dumbest people like me can carry a little bit of knowledge from it through osmosis. But I would ask people to go to it and realize and appreciate that it's not about being an expertise, having an expertise of the event, but having an expertise for the environment and the appreciation of it. And if you do that, it will accentuate what I think is the greatest sports day in the world. Always the best at selling himself short. That is Jake Query. You can hear him tonight on Beyond the Bricks at 8 o'clock. Don't sell yourself short, man. It's your, it's great institutional knowledge. Thanks for your time, man. I am 6'4". All right, guys. Be good. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. There it is. I knew he couldn't get out of here without a joke. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. 
Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Final hour here on the Fan Midday Show. I'm Will Haskett. He's Jimmy Cook. This is my unfortunate uh, karaoke song. I love this song. I cannot. Well, why not you're singing it? Because I can't sing like Brian Adams. Like I want to make this song work, but I don't have that octave. So it, I've failed miserably trying to sing this song a couple of times in karaoke. I need a more of a bass, more sure. like a, probably more of an Eddie Vedder type of song, a deeper baritone. Um, this segues beautifully to our next guest because we're going to talk about what's going on at the Indianapolis 500 because our next guest is the Senior Director of Marketing at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And if you want to completely take this interview and throw it down the toilet, I can tell you that I once did karaoke with him at a bar to In the Jungle. Oh, no, sorry. The Lion Sleeps Tonight. That's awesome. The Lion Sleeps Tonight um, a long time ago and a few cocktails ago. He is the great Michael Kaltmark. Uh, hi, Michael. Are you hanging up now? <laughs> No, I'm not. But I can't believe you uh, divulged that on air. Who hit the high notes? There's there's plenty of other things about trip that we will not divulge on the air. But that was that was definitely a highlight of it. The high notes. Yeah. Who hit the high notes? Both one. of you, or just well, you have you have to both have a crack at it. Okay, right. Okay. It's a team yeah, effort. I got a, I got a nice falsetto. It was okay. Yeah, it was, it's fine. We that was before. <laughs> this is, you young kids. This is before social media or phones that took video or anything like that. Thank so it God. was, yo, yeah. God, is that the truth? <laughs> Speaking of young kids and taking videos and stuff, Michael, I, I asked this question really at the top of the show. Like, I don't know where things are from a social media standpoint, marketing standpoint, trying to attract new people to come to this, I imagine is a lot different than it was 30, 40 years ago. You're way more connected to sort of that. So I want to start off with that. This experience ticket sales are looking great numbers are looking sort of great attracting a new generation of race fans to come to ims what does that entail and what does your team look to try and do to leverage all those things that we're trying to keep our kids off of when we go home every night (laughs) well i'll tell you well the secret formula i think to that is actually the snake pit so when it comes to the racing itself i think we rely a lot on uh our tried and true patrons And so that's why you'll see out here on practice days and qualifying days, uh, kids 15 and under are free. And so if if we've got, um, you know, our blue bloods coming out like they always do, that's our incentive to get them to bring the young ones. And they've been doing a great job. So uh, that's sort of the evangelical work they can do. And, of course, we certainly come alongside them and try to help. I know IndyCar uh, is doing a great job at uh, accessing a, a younger demographic by positioning the drivers uh, in a way that's that's relevant. Uh, but on the, the track side, the promoter side, it gets a little bit more difficult. So we try to have our core audience do that by getting their, you know, um, their young ones in that are 15 and under for free uh, when it comes to those practice and qualifying days. But then back to the snake pit, I think that's our secret formula to introduce um, a younger demographic to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and, and the Indy 500 uh, without actually kind of forcing them into a race. Uh, they're into EDM, they're into festivals and concerts. And so we've got more than 20,000 18 to 25 year olds out in turn three uh, yeah. at an EDM show with pyro going off. And they, I'm not sure if they realize there's a race no. happening as well, but it's their, their sort of pilgr- pilgrimage on Memorial Day weekend. And eventually, I think there's a shelf life for EDM concert going. Eventually they age out and they say, well, We've always gone to the track on Memorial Day weekend. We should probably go, and we can go in the infield. Maybe we won't go to the snake pit. And then eventually they, you know, they settle down. They may have kids, and they're like, okay, well, I'm not going to do the infield anymore. 
I'm going to pay for grandstand seats. And so we're starting to see that evolution. And um, I think, you know, I think promoters across the country would kill for something like the snake pit and we have it. So we're trying to leverage it uh, to the best of its ability. How do you find the right balance between trying to garner new audience or new race fans of any age versus not letting, you know, your hardcore diehards feel left out through that process? Yeah, I think, Jimmy, I think sticking to the traditions, right? Uh, this place is nothing if not for, you know, the traditions that we uphold. And so try not to taint the product or uh, any of the traditions we have. And I think that really resonates with our core audience. That's what keeps them coming back because, they, you know, you heard Jake talk about it when he, you know, he listens to taps and, and you know, that's not going away. And so he's able to have his moment uh, for himself. And I think we have uh, those sorts of experiences built in, uh, whether it's race day or during the month of May or any of our other events, you know, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, thanks to uh, Roger Penske's leadership, just keeps getting better with age. And so I think if we preserve um, that aspect of, of our facility and of our events, uh, then we're not alienating our core audience. They still feel like um, it, it's um, <clears throat> the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the Indy 500 they know and love. And um, and so that's not going away, but yet we're able to be a little bit additive uh, to the recipe and still attract the younger demographic. So with Michael Colt, Mark, Senior Director of Marketing at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Many of you might know him as the dog guy from Butler for all yeah. of those years, which is how I actually had to introduce Michael to my co-host today. I was like, do you remember the guy that had the dog at Butler? It's still the, yes. still a famous thing. Now, what many people don't know about Michael is during the whole time at Butler, he was moonlighting and doing communications work for Ed Carpenter Racing and before that for Vision and pretty much has been with Ed for such a long period of time. We had Ed on earlier in the show. And I've been asking a lot of people, Michael, about sort of learning experiences and how it informs what you're doing now. From all of that experience in the pits and with a particular race team this month and now being on the, as you mentioned, the sort of the promoter side of working for IMS, what from those years did you learn that most informs some of the things that you do now working for the venue? That's a really good question. I, I think... Um it gave me a lot of perspective and maybe maybe some empathy for my counterparts uh, on the team side. But I think uh, as a promoter, obviously, you know, first and foremost, I'm trying to um, position the, the brand and sell a bunch of tickets. And um, and so at the core of what I do, uh, that's it. And then beyond that, I've got a lot of stakeholders, uh, certainly the people that buy the tickets. But then we've got the people who compete here and vendors and, and all these different uh stakeholders across the board and fortunately i've had some experience in most of those areas so i've been on the competition side i've been i've been a fan i've been in the stands with will wearing neon shirts rooting for ed carpenter uh i'm supposed to share that either come on now if we're gonna see (laughs) (laughs) and uh and so i you know i think it gives me some perspective in terms of um what we're all about and how we position ourselves and then when it comes to just interacting with these people and making it a good experience whether that's our for our fans or competitors or vendors or partners um you know i'm going out of my way because i kind of have a sense for what they need and what they want um and i think it just makes uh certainly me better but i think it makes our whole team better uh we're really conscientious about uh what we're doing here and um the experience that we're trying to provide and so yeah i think i lean back on those last 23 years kind of dabbling in motorsports um a lot uh it's it's just given me a a lot of perspective on what we're trying to do here at ims frankly i i want i want us to truly be the racing capital of the world Uh, it's easy to 
sort of uh, you know, put that flag in the ground during the month of May. Uh, but then when we get past May and we, we host NASCAR or we host IMSA, um, I really want those folks to come here and think, man, they do it different at IMS. It, it, it feels unlike any other track we go to. They're, they're first class. Um, and so I, I really pour myself into that because I know what it's like to be in their shoes. I know what it's like to go from track to track to be a part of the traveling circus. And so I want the experience at IMS to be to be completely unique and different in a good way. Michael, I've, I've never been a hardcore concert goer, but I did have an opportunity a couple of years ago to see Shaq DJ in person. And it was awesome. Like it was great. He was out at Summer League in Las Vegas and it was it was amazing. Like it was truly just a spectacle just because of how towering Shaq is, but how much yep. fun he has doing this. What went into the process of of landing him, and how excited were you guys from a marketing perspective on that snake pit angle of of having him be a part of this event? So we work with uh, Chris Schroeder, Chris Schroeder Productions, and he's he's pretty ingrained in the um, the EDM um, you know scene, and so he helps us each year assemble a lineup, and he did a fantastic job last year uh, with the likes of you know Dead Mouse and others, and so. Um, we felt like it was going to be a challenge this year to, to, to top that. And he came through in spades and he, and as we were putting the lineup together, he says, what do you guys think of DJ diesel? And we just look at each other and we're, I think, I don't think it clicked right away. We're like, I'm not familiar. And he goes, no, no, no. Shaquille O'Neal. DJ diesel. We're like, we have to have him. You don't even know if he sounds good. Like we've got to have him. Um, and so uh, we were thrilled with that addition to the lineup and think that he's a big draw. He, he gives some credibility to the event outside of our, you know, typical EDM concert goer, because pretty much everybody in the stands has probably heard of Shaquille O'Neal. And, you know, most people in the stands have no intention of setting foot in the snake pit, but they've heard of Shaq. And, you know, for the most part, I think Shaq probably has a pretty high approval rating across the United States. And so if Shaq's at the Indy 500 and in the snake pit, well, okay, I can get on with that. That's that's cool. That, that adds some credibility to the snake pit and our event uh, overall. And so it's it's good. And we're going to try to leverage uh, Shaquille as much as we can. Of course, it's playoff time, and he has a day job. And so uh, we're trying to balance that uh, right now uh, with the NBA season. And so you know, obviously, he's too big for a two seater. Uh, but we're looking into just about anything else that we might be able to get him to do besides uh, DJing a set at the snake pit. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Michael, it's an interesting segue, too, when you talk about this event within the event and wanting to be sort of the racing capital of the world. But we've seen other things take place at the track, whether it's, you know, standalone concerts, uh, holiday lights, you know, things through the years that kind of have utilized the venue for things beyond racing. What's the conversation like when it comes to, you know, you obviously have the biggest event potential venue in all of central Indiana and one of the biggest in the entire world, but those can be, you know, kind of uniquely problematic, I would guess, based off of what the things are when it comes to that balance of having an amazing venue, but also it being associated with racing. What are those conversations like when it's like, well, do we want to try and do something different with this space? Yeah. I mean, you've got the largest 
sporting venue in the world. And, um, you know, I think you're, you talked about some of the things that we've, we've done with, you know, having uh, holiday lights and uh, just standalone concerts. Uh, since uh, Roger Pinsky and company took over, we sort of narrowed the focus and gotten back to our roots of, of racing. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It helps the team certainly um, and, and kind of keeps us from getting spread too thin. And so when we're not hosting races, there's still something happening out here day in and day out. It's usually uh, OEMs and car manufacturers renting the track and using track time to host uh, VIP clients or um, preferred dealers or whatever. And so the track stays busy um, most days out of the year. However, there are opportunities outside of, of just racing uh, where we can host events. And we try to do that strategically now in a way that makes sense uh, for the business and for our people. And so, um, you know, we've, we've hosted conferences and um, special exhibitions with partners like Shell and things like that. But one of the big things we have coming up where, where we felt like, okay, this is an opportunity for us outside of racing that makes sense for our people and our, and our, and our business, uh, but probably doesn't spread us too thin or detract. And that's uh, next year's solar eclipse where Indianapolis will be in the path of totality. And so um, we, we thought, well, you, you need to be outside for that. And there's a great STEM component uh, involved sure. with this. And so we reached out to NASA and they said, yeah, we'd love to partner with you. And so next April, we're going to, you know, be a host site, an official host site for, um, you know, the eclipse that's coming through. And so that that's, those are ways where we look to try to leverage the venue in a way that's beyond just racing and and do so strategically and so as those types of things come up uh i think we'll jump at it but if it, when it comes to just standalone concerts you know i think live nation and, and our venues in town do a great job of that they, we don't need to fill that that void please tell me what it's like to be like hey hi nasa i'd like to uh, uh, can i talk to one of your rocket scientists please like what's that phone call like it's really awesome they have a whole group that's sort of dedicated to this so they've picked like half a dozen locations um, that are in the path of this eclipse. And, um, and so we did some outreach because we have some relationships there. A lot of IndyCar drivers have done some uh, collaborations with folks at NASA over the years. And so fortunately we had a contact that we could reach out to and, um, and they were game right away. And they were, in fact, they were here uh, last weekend uh, touring the facility again, kind of to, to get to see it in event mode and uh, they were impressed by what they saw and so we have some big plans in the works uh, for next April when when the eclipse comes through it'll, it'll come through on a Monday and um, and so we've just been thinking about okay that's a school day can we get schools involved I mean this place can hold over 325,000 people right so I'm not saying we'll have that many for the eclipse but we're going to go out of our way to see if we can and um and we're and some of the activations we're talking about on site uh, could be really cool for this thing. So again, we want to do things in a way that um, set us apart. And so I think if solar eclipses go, this may be the greatest spectacle in eclipse viewing uh, <laughs> to ever happen. And uh, it, it's going to trademark be that. <laughs> I'm on it. What, what's the craziest? marketing or ad campaign throughout your time here that maybe you thought of or dreamed up that either was maybe too big or or too many moving parts of it to be able to to launch for the month of may oh i don't know jimmy i that'd probably be a better question for doug bowles but there's just so many things i think we think we we throw things at the wall all the time i think on online i read people's comments i think 
they think we don't do anything here. But the reality is we're always talking about celebrities we could bring in or stunts we could pull off. I, I know that's all Doug Bowles thinks about. Like, he is a promoter at heart. And so he's constantly texting us or coming into our office with ideas. And then we got to figure out a way to either make it happen or tell him no uh, reluctantly. Um, so w- I think we often think uh, think big and try to try to find ways to to you know do the you know do the extraordinary um, because we feel like um, the Indy 500 being the greatest spectacle um, deserves that sort of thinking. And so you know I, I think you can think back, Jimmy, to things like the the Hot Wheel stunt where they you know oh, yeah. they jump the truck. You remember that one, Will? Oh, yeah, I think oh, yeah. we were out in turn three. We were for that, that yeah. Uh, we had a great view. Um, and then, uh, you know, whether or there's Red Bull guys jumping motorcycles around the track, some of that stuff. Uh, we Last year we did a Red Bull Keys of the track, and guys were doing things on dirt bikes around here that I never thought would people would go for. And I'm not just talking about driving them through tunnels. Like, they were driving them on grandstands and other things. And I thought, who, appro- who approved this? <laughs> uh, but it was awesome. It made for great video. So, I can't t- come up with a good one. I'm sure Doug Bowles would have sure. a good example for you, Jimmy. But I, I got to tell you, we're constantly thinking about big things that we could pull off here that nobody's ever done because um, that's what we do. I, you know what? The other day we were, I was in a meeting and uh, and um, Tom Cruise's name came up. I don't know, out of nowhere. And, <laughs> and Roger baby. Penske goes, yeah, Ma- Roger Penske goes, you think he could drive an IndyCar? And uh, and we were like, yeah, he could probably do like a test lap. And and then Roger asked me if I saw the Maverick movie, and uh, I I was I couldn't believe it. I didn't know Roger watched movies, but he does. He liked it. So there you go. Uh, more pressure to try and make all of those dreams come true when they throw out big names, or getting your two sons to meet Adam Driver slash Kylo Ren when he's in your town, because uh, that's gonna be a that's gonna be a hard ask right there, Dad. I know. I showed my kids uh, yesterday. I'm like, look who's waving the green flag, and they were like. Kylo Ren? Yeah. And then they're like, do we get to meet him? And I was like, probably not. (laughs) Probably not. Crushing dreams. (laughs) Two years ago, though, we had a couple guys from Dude Perfect, and they just happened to run into them. Yes. And that was gold. Thank God I didn't have to arrange that meetup. They just, it was just, you know, serendipity. They ran into him, and it was great. But yeah, I, I make no promises. Yeah. Can't do it. Can't do that. Uh, what, What are you most excited for this weekend? Oh, well, we've got, um, it's awesome. We've got less than, I don't know, just, we've got a few thousand reserve seats left. Um, tickets are just flying out the door and snake, uh, snake pits up carb days way up. Um, the Indy 500 is up, um, and not just over last year, but we're starting to look at previous years. We're starting to knock on, we're starting to knock on the door of 2016. We're, we're not going to have a sellout this year, although I'd love that. Um, we're starting to bring 2016 into the conversation, and, and it's been a fantastic month. You think about the Grand Prix. Uh, it was our best attendance since, since 2015. You look at the, the first week of oval practice, and uh, we had our best attendance um since 2016 then you look at qualifying weekend since we went to that format uh in 2011 that two-day single weekend format format we had our best attendance since then um and so now we're looking at our best uh race day attendance since uh 2016 when we had the sellout and then as far as carb day and snake pit uh we'll just have to see but they're going to be seller crowds amazing weather on tap uh, there's still tickets available for all this, and so I hope people um, 
continue to buy. It's it's incredible. I mean, we're ready to host a fantastic weekend, and I, I'm I'm giddy about it. I cannot wait. It's going to be great. It, it, it was already electric out here on qualifying weekend, and uh, this weekend is just going to be off the charts. And so I, we're pumped. We're excited. This is why we do what we do. And so to, to see people come back like this, uh, we're thrilled. We just can't wait for it to get here. Michael, I feel like 2016 is such a like huge bar to shoot for. But like you mentioned, you guys are always shooting for the moon in general when promoting and setting this event up. What is a, a success for you at the end of the day? When you look back on Monday morning and you, you see what you guys were able to achieve, what, what for you is a, a success for your year of planning for this thing? Yeah, I think some of it, Jimmy, is the numbers I just talked about, right? Because at the end of the day, you kind of get evaluated on that. Mm -hmm. And the numbers look great. And so now I'm already thinking ahead, okay, what else, like you said, what else are we going to get judged upon? I think customer experience is a big one. Um, You know, we'll put out, um, during the race, we'll we'll be monitoring social media and sort of taking stock in, uh, in terms of what people are saying about us, the questions they're asking of us, the complaints they're logging. Uh, we have a task, social media task force that responds to those in real time, uh, but then also tracks the sentiment and uh, sort of the major themes. And so right away, we'll have some anecdotal data uh, in terms of how it went. Um, and then we do post-event surveys that um, – our ticket buyer is really great about opening and filling out and returning um, digitally. And so um, that will be um, interesting. And, and I got to tell you, our net promoter score uh, for the Indy 500 is off the charts. And it, it's, it's their numbers that would make Mickey Mouse blush. And so uh, I'm fortunate to be able to market a strong brand like that. People love this event and they love us. And they 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 let us know that, and so that's really cool. Um, and so we'll be looking at that uh, over the next uh, seven to fourteen days to make sure that um, we did we we performed, we did what we needed to do to provide a great expo- experience for people who came. Um, and then I think you know, in addition to that, um, we're going to see how the renewal period goes when the checker flag falls. Um, that starts our race to renew, and so there's 500 hours, roughly two weeks, that people have to put in their renewal and um, also uh, put in a request for an upgrade. And so um, after that two weeks, we typically have the venue half sold out for the next race, for the next year's race. And so with more people than can fit in, um, you know, in the stands for the Daytona 500, for example. So it's huge. That, those 500 hours are huge. And we're already up on renewals. Renewal period is technically open. If you want to renew now, you can. And we're already up over last year's renewals. And so uh, at this point in time, anyway. So, so far, so good. But we've got a race weekend to have happen. And so we need to see how it goes. First, you know, Rogers, uh, Roger Penske's main priority is that people have a great experience. That's why he keeps adding digital boards and, and making sure the restrooms are clean and, frankly, dumping $50 million into this place since he bought it because he wants people to have a good experience. If they do, chances are they'll come back. Michael Kaltmark, Senior Director of Marketing at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. It's been a big year leading to a big month and leading to a big day on Sunday. Enjoy it like you always do. And if you need a place to escape on Monday, the pool's ready. So bring the boys over. Oh, my man. Appreciate that. Yep. Hey, good thanks for the time. You guys. Yep. Go dogs. Yeah, second time. Second time. In with that go dogs. He's a year older than Ed and I, though, so he's the wiser of the trio.